Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. I'm your host, Deb Philman. At The Reason We Learn, we aspire to be part of the solution. The purpose of this show is to take a good, honest, potentially painful look at the way kids are being educated. We know we can do better, and this is where we'll talk about how. Let's learn something. Thank you for joining me today for a conversation with Barrington Merton II. If this is your first time here, I hope you'll consider subscribing so you can be notified about new content, especially live shows like this one that will be better run next time. The goal is for this to be a meeting place, a town hall of sorts where people who want to improve education come to hear ideas, share their own, place where diversity of thought is not only welcomed, but championed. With that goal in mind, I've invited Barrington Martin to talk to us today about race, politics, and what he thinks people are missing in the debates about how to improve education in America. Barrington is a former candidate in the 2020 congressional primary for Georgia's 5th District and a current political thought leader with writing credits in Newsweek, Fox News, Breitbart, Schoon TV, appearances on RT News and Sky Australia, and his own talk radio show on Atlanta Talks called The Barrington Report. I'm really excited to talk to him. I've followed him on Twitter for a very, very long time. And so without further ado, please welcome Barrington Martin II. Wow, what a glitch there. Boop, I'm going to hit my thing. I hit the wrong button and then I'm like out in. So how are you? Welcome. No, thank you for having me. First of all, I just want to say your intro is amazing. Thank uh, you. I I want to also be good say- if I hit it the right time. <laughs> yes, like, I, I love it. I watched um, your last episode with um with buck great episode um thank you yeah so that kind of made me a fan before we even started talking so yeah uh, so i'm happy to be, I'm so excited <laughs> to be here i'm so excited to talk to you and um it should be interesting to see where we are able to take our conversation today yeah i'm excited so as i was telling the audience um i followed you for a long time on twitter and one of the things that made me really want to talk to you is you display moral courage on a daily basis, what I call moral courage, Thank you. which basically means you say what you, what I believe you genuinely think and you take heat for it. I think sometimes people come to you with a preconceived idea of what you're going to say. You are a democratic congressional candidate. Um, you're black. You know, I think people come at you and it's like, okay, speak these words, have this opinion and I see you being you. And I know that sounds crazy to be so, you know, like, wow, that's amazing and a novel concept, but, but it kind of is. So what, what motivates you? What inspires you and what, what drives you in that respect? So let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. Like, um, first of all, thank you for your compliments. And people always like to tell me that I'm courageous for saying the things that I'm saying, but I honestly feel like I'm just stating common sense. Like I'm just really, I'm just really pointing out what's happened, what's happening in the world, excuse me. And I just think that how everything goes back to how I was raised. I have to say that everything was goes back to how I was raised. Everything goes back to how my parents conditioned me and essentially allowed me to, grow within myself or grow within who I am. I said this because a lot of times, especially now, I would say more so than any other time in my lifetime, people have a set expectation on who you should be rather than allowing you to be the individual that you are. So because we have gotten to this era to where um, people want to break off into tribes and people want to break off into tribal ideologies, it kind of sort of allows or disallows a person to be who they need to be themselves. And that's the thing. Um, 
my parents always, even though I'm the oldest of five, my parents always looked at everyone as individuals. So, for example, growing up, if I saw my siblings get in trouble for something that I felt like they shouldn't get in trouble for, I would speak up. Like in, in my family, I'm the rebel. In my family, I'm the person that, like, you know, he's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to think what he wants to think, regardless of what anyone says. Like, peer pressure wasn't a thing for me growing up because, honestly, my father wouldn't allow that, you know, with, within me growing up. And so now as an adult and I'm looking at the world as it transpires, the way that it's transpiring and things are happening the way that they're happening, I think that people have been more afraid to be honest with themselves. And because of that, we're watching a deterioration of our society. We're watching cultural rot takes place and it's going to continue. It's going to worsen if people don't say anything about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear when you're speaking though, the things that jumped out at me, as you said, that the way you were raised, this is something that happened not in a school. So this yeah. is education you got in your home. Absolutely. Let's let's get into that because I think this is interesting. And um, it wasn't until my adulthood until where I actually looked at my upbringing and saw how it was really legitimately my family that influenced um, whether it's my my um, academic achievement, my scholastic achievement, anything dealing with school was my family. I say this because, for example, uh, you start school pre-K four or five years old. Right. Um, My parents went to work at different times of the day. So for example, when my mother was at work during the daytime, my father was with me. So while my father was with me, I remember this vividly. I had maybe two to three hours of instruction doing those leapfrog workbooks. And this is before I even saw grade school, right? And so when I go in or enter into kindergarten, I went to pre-K, but I don't really remember that. When I went, went into kindergarten, first day of school, my teacher is like, he's too advanced. So then I got tested for the gifted program. Then I ended up being in the gifted program. And then that basically like started um, my, my scholastic trek or whatever, right? But this is the key thing, right? Um, my grandmothers were very um, hands-on with our education. And when I say our, I mean my, my siblings and I. And so what I mean by that is you go you leave school at 2.30. I knew that um, my father would probably, my, my mother was still at work. My father would probably be just getting off of work or whatever at the time. I would go over to my grandmother's house. I had two hours, two extra hours of instruction immediately over my grandmother's house before I got a chance to play, right? So just think about how that builds over time. So my uh, my classmates or my cohort, they just go to school. I don't know what they, what they did, but normally how it looks of how we all, um, how our, our paths were, um, my cohort or whatever, everybody just went to school, went home. I went to school, got two extra hours of instruction. Then I was able to like go play like regular kids. And over time, that two hours of instruction from Monday through Friday for one year, that compounds over time. So about the time I get to middle school, imagine how far advanced I am with, uh, I mean, um, imagine how far advanced I am compared to my classmates. And this is something that specifically myself and my baby sister got, and now it shows just like with like all of our work throughout high school, throughout college and things of that nature. Yeah. And do you remember how you felt like in terms of valuing yourself because you got that attention? Do you have a recollection of that at all? Do you have any kind of a sense 
that, you know, of feeling like you mattered or feeling important that this time was put into you? Okay. So that's the thing too. Um, I don't, I don't think I look at it that way. I, I look at it as the way is that was what I was supposed to do. Um, I said this on Twitter a while back is that like my ex, my parents or my family's expectations for us was so high growing up. It almost shaped the expectations we have for ourselves. So for example, I'm, I'm a very confident person. A lot of that confidence just comes back into play or originated with the fact that like my father told me for, from an early age, this is what's expected of you. And when you have people that care about you, that set high expectations for you, what ends up happening is you set high expectations for yourself. And mm -hmm. I think, I think what we are seeing right now in um, academia specifically is that these people, the, the, the intelligentsia, the black intelligentsia specifically, don't have high expectations for black kids. Uh -oh. and, yeah. and in turn, um, what, what ends up happening is um, it's the bigotry of low expectations, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because of that, kids aren't excelling or even putting themselves or thinking of themselves at the level they need to be to succeed. And it just creates a, a domino effect of um, unfortunate failures. Yeah. And what do you, what would you say to the people though, who tell you that it is racist to have those high expectations or that the high expectations are a specifically kind of white thing. They're part of whiteness or any of that. Like I, I hear that a lot and I'm baffled because like one of my heroes is Marva Collins Okay. And Marva Collins' method of teaching was exactly what you described. Like you set very high standards, but then you help the kids meet get there, yes. right? You help the kids meet those standards. You meet them wherever they are and you help them get there at their pace. And I've, you know, people criticized her. People have said to me, like, you don't have a leg to stand on and that's racist. What do you say to those people? Well, I have to ask them questions because that's that's my thing. I don't I don't want to I like asking people questions to, to actually get them to understand the mm -hmm. foundations of their thought processes, right? So if that's racist to expect high expectations, then how do you feel that it's not racist um to expect high expectations? What 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 is it with black children to where you feel that they can't meet these expectations that have been really honestly normal um since since I've been a kid? You know, when you when you're in New York City and you say that, hey, well, we're looking at the statistics of the, the, the scores of testing and that black children are doing so well. So let's just remove the entire um, testing for gifted program for everybody. That's ridiculous. Why, why would you harm um, someone else or one specific everyone else for the achievement or lack of achievement for other groups? Why aren't you asking questions about, well, why aren't these kids? Um, reading up to par re reading level or doing their math towards the level they need to be the specific grades. Why, why, why aren't you looking at the foundation of their homes to see what their home life is like, to see if they're getting type of, any type of enrichment at home? Instead, you're just taking data and numbers from test scores and automatically labeling all the kids that look like that when essentially all black kids, all black people aren't a monolith. They don't, they don't have the same experience. There is no central concrete black experience. And I think that when, or since we've, I guess, progressed into this woke era where everyone wants to, you know, care about everyone's feelings, everyone wants to look at the things that, do, that does not matter, we mm -hmm. tend to have um, negated or simply ignored some of the foundational elements that have created the conditions that we have existed in today.
And I, mm-hmm. it, to me, it goes back to family. I will always say it goes back to family. It goes back to the cultural expectations that are created within a family. Now, for example, um, going back to my grandmother, my grandmother was a stickler of education. My grandmother, like she was the valedictorian of her high school class. And my grandmother is 91 years old. So think about that. Now, my grandmother was born in 1930. She lived within the Great Depression. She lived within all world wars, all the wars we've been through. And Mm -hmm. she remained consistent due to the teachings of her parents. And she um, she passed that on to us and all my little cousins. So when you have a grandmother or grandfather who like sets the tone with their own kids and then and then are still able to set the tone with you that creates like a domino effect of expectations that even when she goes away the foundational um you know cultural standards that she set is going to still live within me now mm-hmm. with that being stated oftentimes when you look at students that are not ex- ex- excelling well it doesn't start with them they're children they don't have any type of agency over their decision making. They don't have, they don't have the the cognitive ability to create structure. That's what the family's for. That's what parents are for. That's legitimately, like I think that that aspect of it is being missed because now I feel like a lot of people, a lot of parents are raising kids just to take care of their kids, but are raising their children to be productive citizens to to contribute to society and this is why we're seeing all of these things and all these issues that we're seeing today in my opinion that is what i so what's hard for me and tell me if you have this similar problem is that there therefore is truth to the claim that there is a cohort of kids in a school and of course it's not only black students you also have parents doing this kind of phoning it in on the character development stuff in all cultures. Okay. But it's just, that's the, it seems like that's where they get focused mostly is on, you know, the black community. But so there's some truth that, well, not every kid has that privilege, family privilege, whatever you want to call it, that benefit, that, that upbringing. Ergo, we, the school need to fill in those blanks. In other words, like they're identifying, they seem to be identifying a real thing although I would argue they help cause it, but let's just take it from today. Right. And so here we are. And their solution is make the school more the family. I disagree. I think go the other way, make the school less the family, put the onus back onto parents, feed your own kids, make sure they get here on time, make sure they get their schoolwork done. Like in other words, rather than saying, well, parents aren't doing the job, so we'll do it for them. I think they've created a moral hazard when they do that. They're just going to encourage more of the same. What say you? What do you think about what we should do about the very real problem that, you know, there are kids who don't have what you had? Okay, so um, this may be harsh, but I'm going to say a couple of things. I don't, first of all, I don't believe that, um, I just had the thought in mind, but basically I don't think um, charity should come from the government or any in any type of way. I don't I, I don't think that that that's that's not what the government is for, including government institutions. I'm sorry for that noise. I don't even know why it keeps continues to do it's that. It's OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a first. Secondly, um, it's not a state's 
it's, it's not a state's obligation to ensure that children or that anyone is getting what they're not getting um, from home. And this is why it always goes back to why I say that people have to feel the pain of their their, their choices and um, feel the consequences of their choices as well. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but um, our kids, kids are going to have to to feel the ramifications of that. Like at the end of the day, I understand that I was fortunate enough to come from a loving family. I hit, I hit the, I hit the lotto in that regard, and I understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, there are some other kids who may not have had the privilege and opportunities that I, that have been afforded to me because of my family. But that's just life. It's unfortunate, but that's just that's just the way it is. By trying to nurture or create this nurturing environment, rather within the schooling system, it does not. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna harm. I feel like the students there because there are going to be students who are going to be able to get the things that they need, but then they're going to they're going to be students who are not going to get the things that they need. They're going to be students who already have that structure in home, but they need the enrichment within the that the school system provides that continues to test them and continues to pushes them to excel. I don't, I don't this this notion that um, we've gravitated to over the last I would say decade or so where when the families is failing, the government is supposed to pick up where the family's leaving off. No, that's not how, that's not real life. And because people don't understand that when you are making or creating this expectation that the government is supposed to do that to me, and it's obvious based on history, the government will, will tend to take away your rights away because it's just like, it's just like almost um, you sacrificing your freedom for safety, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like you want the government to be there. You want these these the school system to have this nice, comfortable safety net to pick to to pick you up when you should fall or prevent you from falling yourself. But sometimes, and I feel like this is human nature in my opinion. Sometimes human beings need to feel the pain of their fall in order to be better because you're not helping people. You're not helping people when you're not helping them help themselves. And just basically holding the hands of children where they're not getting the enrichment that they need. For example, I want to say um, Oregon's governor signed a bill the last couple of years that stated that um, graduating seniors for the next few years do not have to even pass the metrics for reading, writing and math. That is ridiculous. Why? Because we're going to see the ramifications of this down the line when these same kids who graduated high school and didn't have to show any proficiency, any of these things are going to be looking for jobs. And when they can't find jobs, what do you have to resort to? Crime. And when they resort to crime, that deteriorates the community. And you see, it's a, it's a domino effect. It's mm-hmm. unfortunate we want to save everybody, but the truth of the matter is everybody can't be saved. And this is why I think it's important, specifically when all of these um Supreme Court rulings are being passed, and it is kind of sort of shaking up um, the societal status and how we tend to uh, congregate with each other. Um, we have to be more more accountable for our own actions and be more responsible for the decisions that we make. And it's unfortunate, but unless you want to make great decisions for yourself and deal with the consequences of those decisions, then so be it. But if not, you may have to feel some pain for a little bit. It's unfortunate, yeah. but it's fair. It's hard, but fair. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, but it's, you know, whenever you, you say things like that and you try to explain to people that they're actually doing the opposite of helping people when they do that, 
it's just so easy for people to brush you off and label you, you know, and say like, well, that you think that because X or you don't care about these people. It's like, no, actually, believe it or not, I do care, which is why I think that the best way for, you know, to help these kids is to put it back on their parents. And it's, it's kind of tragic. There will be some that just won't be helped, won't be saved. But I think the, the standard it sets in the culture moving forward will save millions. So, you know, you kind of have to also have a, a, a long range thinking kind of plan. And people tend to think very short term, um, which brings me to another question about data. Um, one of the trends, and it's been a trend for a very long time, is to disaggregate school data about proficiency by race. Mm -hmm. And this is a hot button topic, because if you suggest that we shouldn't do that because it doesn't tell us the things that people say it tells us, then it's like, well, you don't want to acknowledge that there's a racial difference. And it's like, no, that's self-evident. In other words, if you're a teacher in the classroom, you're going to see the trend. I mean, you can see it. It's not, it's, you don't need a standardized test to tell you who's doing well in your class and who's not doing well, what the averages are. My challenge with the disaggregating of the data and making that so front and center public is people will then manipulate that and use it for political purposes. Now you're involved in both politics and the cultural commentary. What do you think? I mean, if you think I'm wrong, please tell me because I'm not a data expert. I just, when I look at this disaggregation, I see it doing more harm than good. I agree with you. So I don't. I think that race needs to, needs to be totally removed from from any type of um, data, any type of surveys. Race needs to be races needs to be removed. Like I hate race. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it because it because it's it's, it's honestly it's been a a very uh, it, it's been very instrumental and it's been uh, very surgical in like uh, basically separating people and basically. Um, just basically causing chaos. Like it's, it's, it's one of the foremost greatest chaos agents in our society right now, in Western society, in this race. Because oftentimes what you will start to understand is when you break things down into class, that's when you're able to see what's really going on. And I hate race as well, especially, especially with data, um, with schooling and um, statistics as far as like what students are doing well. It tends to, again, group everyone together specifically because of my skin color, then automatically, you automatically will think a certain thing about me or um, you would have or create this a story about me based on how I look and it shouldn't be that way. If you know where I come from, if you know the type of family I'm come from, then you can create a, a, an idea, a better idea, but just simply stating that, oh, well, the black kids are doing bad in this, in this subject or throughout all of these subjects and the white kids are doing well, someone someone who has no idea about data statistics will come along and say, well, there's something inherent between those two children or those two types of children that make them do well. And it's no, it's basically um, the foundation of, of, of where these kids were cultivated. And we see this across the board. And I mean that you, you can see, look at poor white kids and poor black kids and they are performing poorly on subjects. And you can see middle-class black kids and the middle-class other races of kids performing typically well. And it's based on uh, the data of, you know, their socioeconomic background. And I just don't think it's fair to those, some of those kids who come from poor backgrounds and they actually do well, but the, the, the data that groups all of them together won't allow their achievements to, to bleed through what the numbers say. Right. And I mean, there, I was looking the other day because I got challenged on this on Twitter and somebody said, well, actually, they're, the poor white kids still do better 
than even some of the uh, middle class and upper middle class black kids. And they were showing me some recent data and they weren't wrong, you know, about what the, the data, the raw data showed. But then in, in the context of it was still about, you know, culture and like, well, you know, what are the parents doing for a living and how are they paying attention? Like, well, now we're back to culture. Now we're back to class. Now we're back to something yes. other than race. So you're still, it's like you started with a true statement about what they look like, which is pretty superficial, what demographic group they belong to. But you're, but you're now at least admitting that it has nothing to do inherently with that skin color. It had to do so with some other issues. And yeah. I just think it, it, it makes it really difficult for teachers on the ground in the classroom. I think it makes it difficult um, for parents who want to do right by their kids right. um, to take responsibility for that. If we keep pointing at these numbers and saying, well, it's because of something, you know, skin color. And you also just made the point that when someone does well, they point to nature. They're like, oh, well, it's something about that specific kid. Right. But when they're doing poorly, it's, oh, it's the Borg. It's the skin color. It's the thing. It's like, what? <laughs> How come it's nature and what? It's so unfair. It's so unfair because you like, like I ask. That's something I ask people all the time when people like to group or say, "Oh, there's this this concrete or this this total like um, this African African American experience that encapsulates all of us." And I'm like, well, explain myself. Explain these other people. Like, are we? Are you saying that we're exceptional? Are you saying that that like we're um, the exception that rule because if so, I disagree with that because again, like I can, I can think about so many other, um, people that I've been, like grew up with who, whose parents made way more money than my parents did, but they didn't, they lacked the, the cultural foundation that I had. And so, and it, and it told, it showed rather in the choices that they made. And this is what I'm saying. Like, this is why I, I hate any conversations any conversation, excuse me, that stems around race because it doesn't show the picture. Like just, it just basically allows you to get something, something very shallow, a shallow idea of something that is totally nuanced and that needs to be an idea that needs to be furthered out. But we don't do that anymore. We simply say, "Oh, this is what happened to black people. This is what happens to white people." So we got to figure out why whites are doing so much better than blacks. And in order to do that, we have to. It has to be something racist. It has to be. And it's right. like, come on, guys. That's not fair. And even if we acknowledge historical oppression and things that may well have contributed in, you know, to, from the start, if like we were running a long race, for example, and you want to go back to the time when, you know, black Americans actually were, you know, hobbled. OK, um, it, it, we're here. We're here now. Right. We can't go back and fit. we can acknowledge that without saying that we, we, we have the capacity to completely undo it. We can't. We are where we are. And so my question for you would be, if the school can't and shouldn't, and I agree, they can't and they shouldn't, replace the, the, the family component or whatever, and people need to experience the consequences of their choices, how do we begin that? Like, I think what it makes people feel stuck a little bit is they're like, okay, I can get behind this, but what does that translate to in policy? Okay. So for, for starters, if I think that, um, I, I honestly feel like grading should be as stern as possible, but not like overly stern. What I mean by that is if you have a child that's didn't get their marks and they fell great, they shouldn't be pushed through. They have, they should be able to repeat the Like, like back in when I grew up, if you failed, you failed. You got to repeat a certain grade. You have to repeat your certain grade. And the thing, what what that does is 
it does two things. It does something for the child and it does something um, for the parents. First and foremost, it does something for the child because I think oftentimes adults don't understand that children have egos too and children have feelings. The reason I say this is because you will know or you will see in a child's demeanor that when they know they're not doing well and they know that they don't want to be um, held back in the same grade, they, they begin to get anxious. They begin to understand like, well, I don't want my friends to think I'm dumb. I don't want to be, I don't want to be considered dumb and they will actually try harder. But now because we've created an environment that basically, that basically tells children that no matter what you do, you're going to always be pushed through. Then we are doing a, a major disservice to them. Secondly, it will allow children, the children's parents to see that if their child is failing, it's just not on um, the, capa the, the ability of the child. It's something that is not happening within the home that they need to be fixing. And I think that it's like, you have to do things that is gonna create an environment to where the parents themselves and the student are gonna make the necessary changes in order to um, promote or produce the outcome that they're looking forward to. We can't, we got, we have to go back to basics. And I, I think that that's, that's the important saying, going back to basics and just not, not caring about feelings, but caring about results. Because now we've gotten, we've gotten too accustomed or to, to want to hold hands, sing Kumbaya and, and have this imaginary idea that, hey, everything is going to be fine as long as everyone feels good, but everyone can't feel good if little Johnny doesn't know his multiplication tables and he's going to the sixth grade next year. Because right. what because what's not being talked about is you know we hear this this um pipeline of prison prison pipeline thing and it's not it's not an honest it's not an honest um critique on that the the whole understanding is if a child is not doing their work if a child cannot um put together um the success in 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 this in scholastic achievement then nine times out of ten that child won't be able to get a job. And if that child can't get a job, how are they going to take care of themselves? Crime, right. crime. Right. We're not having that. We're not having these honest conversations anymore. And that's the problem. No. Well, I think it's like 70% of the prison population is functionally illiterate. You know, we're not talking about people who have the most basic literacy skills. And you, that's a fundamental. I mean, to me, if you don't get kids reading properly before the fifth grade, that is the school to prison pipeline, regardless yeah. of race. That's there's you're setting these kids up. They don't have an honest means. Uh, I want as it, there are honest means of work, but it, they won't know how to find them because they can't read. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to find work, but you do know how to, you do have to be able to communicate. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I agree with everything you just said. The thing that I think we don't talk about enough though, is also the the style of the curriculum. Now you mentioned back to basics and you talked about, you know, to reading and multiplication and things like that. But another thing that has happened, and maybe you've noticed this is they've changed the curriculum itself. Mm -hmm. So not only have we removed the grading and the standards, but now it's like everything's done as a group and we don't have any, you know, what they used to call drill and, you know, that they would like drill you and your knowledge. We don't have a knowledge based curriculum. They've demonized knowledge itself memorizing things, whatever. And while I'm not a giant fan of having kids endlessly memorize facts for no good reason, in the elementary grades, 
you kind of can't really help it. Like the kids need to have a basis. Like you said, multiplication tables. They need to know how to read. They yes. need to build their vocabulary as big as they possibly can with spelling tests and vocabulary tests. Because then as you get into the next phase of education, they have to have a framework. There has to be like a foundation to build the rest of the house. And then you can start getting a little bit more creative, like electives and stuff. And what do you want to study and learn about? But if you don't have those basics, you've got, You've got, it's like a void. It'd be easy to convince them anything is true. It's true with science too. So we hear often those foundations are racist. Like in other words, that not only the action of getting kids to memorize stuff and have high standards, but math itself or the English vocabulary or grammar or what have you. And this is the actual argument saying it's not culturally relevant. It's not culture responsive. And so that's been the excuse of like, well, we're not doing that knowledge-based curriculum anymore either. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It's, it's really ridiculous. Everything, everything today is racist. Everything like, like, like we've totally, we've totally bastardized and demonized like words and water, the, the meaning of words down to the point to where anything that we don't like that may remotely um, have some type of racial implications, we will call it racist. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, like, I think when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to education, when it comes to retaining the necessary data information that you need to be successful, there is no race or there's no nothing racial. There's no racial component with it. Right. But uh, again, this is the woke the woke era. So right. anytime, anytime something harms a person of color or or minority, then we we have to automatically say that it's because of, of racism, and it's not the case at all. Um, right. I think people have lost an idea and I think it, it goes, it, it extends secondary school. It goes to post-secondary education as well. Elementary school, you're supposed to learn the basics. Um, elementary, middle school, you're supposed to learn the basics. High school, you're supposed to be able to apply those basics because you're about to go off and venture off and be an adult. College is where you learn different concepts and different perspectives of thought, right? And then grad school is where you learn how to think. You learn how to critically think. Now, I feel like coming up, I will learn how to critically think at an early age. That was that was like a, a very that was placed a huge emphasis on myself, my siblings, and just uh, my cohort. I don't think kids are learning how to critically think anymore. I think that when you um, when you give information to someone, they're told to not only be able to regurgitate that information, but to to know that 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 information is correct without any type of scrutiny. And that's not how it should be. Your mind should be molded. Of course, you need to know the basics. You need to know simple math. You need to know um, geography. You need to know the simple things, the basic things to have. Things that are objectively true and they're yes. not really up for discussion. You know, yes, like yes. two plus two equals four. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, but saying like math is racist, um, like like uh, a guy, I hated that entire form that was from the Smithsonian that stated what was, what was <gasps> oh my gosh, I, I detested that because yep. it's a slap in the face to all of us who've been through the school system, who understood that achievement, there's nothing racist about achievement. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's back to what I was saying there real quick. I just think that um, like kids have to go back to like asking questions, like the, the age old saying, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I don't, I don't hear that anymore with little kids um, being curious, always questioning things, not the concrete things, but just having a, a pure curiosity on a lot of the concepts they experience. And sure. it's like, 
no that doesn't happen anymore and it's so yeah. odd to me it is it's it's it it makes me mad like i feel like and i have called it a form of child abuse um before because i think if you're going to you know basically compel kids to show up to school which is what they do it's like government compulsion you got to go to school and then they're a captive audience and then you fill their heads full of all this relativistic garbage you don't hold them to any standards and then you turn them loose on the world and lie to them and say they're ready. Like, why don't you just throw them into shark infested waters before they even know how to swim and go, you're fine. You know, like it's, it just feels abusive to me. It's like, you guys have to know better. You, you, you gotta know that they're not ready and that you're setting people up to be angry, resentful, disappointed, you know, all kinds of negative things. Mm -hmm which of course then comes back and feeds the narrative that the world is an unpleasant, horrible, unwelcoming, non-inclusive place. Right. Um, do you think it's intentional or do you think this is just a bunch of really stupid people doing stupid stuff? I think it's, I think it's um, a bit of both to be yeah. honest. I think it's a bit of both. I think that um, in our society, See, this is what I've been kind of uh, fighting back and forth with. Like, what is the rationale behind this? Because I, in my mind, I would think that the people that make decisions in the society will want the absolute best people for specific positions or in specific areas. Because if you, if you promote any type of pure and natural competition, then you're going to absolutely get the, the best all, always. But then on the flip side, it's like, okay, at the end of the day, even though we're human beings, we're still animals, which means that we're still competing for something, no matter mm -hmm. what it is, mm -hmm. whether it's for a job, um, whether it's uh, for status. We, we, we compete every day we, we wake up, no matter, no matter if we believe that or not, right? And in, in some respects, it may seem like these people that make decisions want to create a certain class of individuals that will always be stuck that way other people, other people within society don't necessarily have to work for the things that they work for. But I think ultimately it goes both ways. You have, mm -hmm. you have um, not the most intelligent people making not the most intelligent decisions. And then you have a system that's created that will enable people to continuously make bad decisions for themselves. So it mm -hmm. kind of goes, it goes both ways when essentially I feel like the, the solution is simple in in that you keep the standards where they need to be at, at a baseline for everything regarding um scholastic achievement and then people will succeed where they succeed and people will fail where they fail you can't mm -hmm. automatically in this this idea that we need to produce be able to produce results or produce equal outcomes that's not realistic how we know that's not realistic there are children every day that grow up within the same household, with the same parents, under the same rules that do differently every day. But this idea that we can, we can, you know, create or manipulate specific systems to allow that poorest black child to be as, or have, have the greater marks as a middle, middle-class Asian is just ridiculous because culture, culture, it goes back to culture. Right. It would seem more responsible to say, if you want what other people have, look at how they got it yes. and model 
your behavior and your attitude towards that. And if you find that objectionable for some reason, then maybe you don't really want what they have. You know, so I mean, in other words, I think sometimes people look at an outcome and they say, I want that outcome. And they, and we don't, I don't think we do a good job of showing our kids process. You know, how did people get rich? How did people get successful? Even just look at your biggest rap star, for example. And they see the outcome of this person's rich and they get all this stuff, whatever, but they don't necessarily see what it took to get there. What did they have to give up? What did they have to agree to do? What kind of values do they have to live every day? Like, do you want that life? Cause it's not, it's a package deal. It's not like you can just snap your fingers and wake up one day and have what they have. And somebody could come along and say, it's not fair. They have it. And you don't hear me to give it to you. And it doesn't work like that. So you know, if you don't want to do your homework every day and you don't want to read books instead of go on your tablet or your computer and you don't want to, you know, take extra classes after school and do all this extra stuff, then you don't really want what they have because that's how they got it. Absolutely. Deb, I, I say this all the time to my friends. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. <laughs> that's a very good way to put it. Yes. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die to get there. And it's like, Everybody that's great or every person that's done great things has had a, a, a road, has had like a, um, like the most difficult time in getting there. And it's like, again, it goes back into cultural values and cultural standards. We value the finish line. We never value the, de the, the route that was taken to get there at all because that's 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 not sexy. That's not cool. Nobody, nobody wants to to speak about all the hard times or when they weren't as great at what they what they were or what they are as the finished product. And essentially, we push that on our children. We say, "Hey, look at look, look at look at LeBron James. Look at Jay Z. Look at all these great people. Like you can do that too." And it's like, okay, so how do I do that? Well, I don't know. Well, you just you just got to make it. It's like what? Exactly. <laughs> it's not okay. Like you have to yeah. you have to tell them. You have to show them like. These people worked hard, they studied their crafts, they worked hard at their craft, and every day that they lived up to the point of who they are today was not a good day. It was not and, a good day. And there's two things we also don't teach them, that talent is a thing, and yes. if you don't have it, you don't have it, and those, those are the breaks. Yes. And yes. also... There is a certain measure of luck. Luck is not privilege. Luck is just luck. And but it takes you can try to make a certain measure of your own luck. In other words, you do if you do the behaviors like you're talking about, you do that hard work and you do those things, you hone your craft, whatever. The odds that you're going to put yourself in a position where that's fortuitous and you like run across somebody who can help you are higher. Absolutely. than if you didn't do any of that stuff, but it's still no guarantee. So like we're not teaching our kids that the people who have succeeded, whether it's in a sport or entertainment or even business, they are in a tiny little percentage of people. That's not to make them feel defeated before they start. It's just to say that, you know, be in awe of their talent, be, in, you know, like enjoy their work products right. as a spectator, as a consumer of it or whatever. The fact that you can't achieve that does not mean you're a failure or you're a loser. It means, wow, they're truly exceptional. Right. That's what it means. And you can still achieve to a, to a level that's, you know, below them. Like, okay, you didn't word a first round draft pick, 
but you were an awesome football player. You were an awesome basketball player, way above 99% of other people. Pat yourself on the back. Guess what? You're in the best shape of your life. You still probably make a lot of contacts and you could be a coach. You could do so many things in your life. This is not a failure. Right. 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 So, but we, we don't do that. We, we, like you said, the push to be have equal outcomes negates talent. It negates luck. It negates hard work, all of which feed into this. Right. And I think kids would tolerate, like, like you said, real life, not being the perfect thing that I want it to be. If we taught them that like reality, what it is. Right. And it's, it's, it's like, um, it's just the participation trophy culture as well. Teaching every all the kids that they're special, um, teaching that teaching kids or enabling the behaviors to make them feel that they deserve something simply because they feel that they deserve it. And again, it goes back to feeling just because you feel a certain type of way does not make it valid. Like that, that's that's not how it works. There's a kid somewhere right now that's that's going to work and going working obsessively over whatever it is that he or she wants to do, and it's gonna show. And to tell a kid, another kid, that they can do that exact same thing, but not state that, well, you have to sacrifice, you have to work hard, you have to be willing, you have to be willing to to, to do things that you don't want to do in order to get this. It's, right. it's it's really ridiculous and unfair. Yeah, it's unfair to both of them. Absolutely. You know, and and you know, so okay, thinking about solutions, we talked about you know policy, like have the grades up, you know, in, in, in schools and things like that. And instead of the standard, have people have to deal with the consequences of the choice to have kids in the first place, whether it's from meal policy or healthcare policy or whatever like that right now, they want to put all mental health in the schools and all the, uh, you know, but, um, in, let's say just in specific, you know, how we talk to kids, specific behaviors, I mean, going back to thinking when you were a kid, what would you like kids today to know, like, what would you say if you were in a, in a classroom, if you were teaching or parenting, I don't know if you have kids, but like, what kind of, um, what, what should we be doing or saying differently? Um, I think kids need to understand that they're only, they have, their parents work hard for them on a day-to-day -day basis to take care of them. Right. And I think like, uh, one of the lessons my parents taught me at a young age is that I only, my job it's easy. All I have to do is go to go to school, get good grades, and behave. That's not asking a lot. That that that's an expectation, actually. Um, and I think children don't necessarily have expectations. Children these days, in my opinion, don't know what it's like to not want to disappoint their parents. That was like the worst fear I ever had. I disappointed myself, but disappointed my parents because I know if. I did something and they have to leave work that's put the, their job in jeopardy, puts their our entire economic standing in jeopardy. They have to leave work to see something that I'm, that I'm doing, not what I'm supposed to be doing in school. That's ridiculous. And I think that like, um, like, like kids don't have that, that sense of uh, like expectation to know like, okay, I knew I should not be doing this. So let me not do this because it's going to open up a whole can of worms or or um, I know that my parents have so much more to be concerned with than the grades that I'm getting. So let me just do my homework and let me study on my own. But at the same time, on the flip side, parents have to provide that structure. Parents have to realize that you're just not taking care of a child, but you're preparing them to be 
a productive citizen in the world, or you at least should be wanting to prepare them instead of just looking after them or whatever. I think, well, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, so that's on the side of like, you know, there's, there's kind of two sides on the whole like parenting. I'll think there's the side of, you know, consequences and, mm -hmm. and we don't have those enough. I think it's well put. The other thing I, I mean, tell me anything about this. I think what's missing from education is the joy of learning. So we obviously we don't, you know, we would like kids to remember that, you know, their parents are people too, and they work hard mm -hmm. and you should try to, you know, do your best. But I really wish that there, that whether it was, because I don't think going to school in the way that we do school is really does designed to do this, but that kids could see the time they spend learning wherever they happen to be, whether it's at home with grandma, whether it's in a school, whatever is supposed to be for you. Right. Like this is to enrich your life and to equip you and like to liberate you. You know, when, you know, there's all this talk about liberation, but what's so weird is that it's so, it's so, they want it so free. Like, you know, check a box. I got an A, I'm liberated. No, you're liberated because of knowledge. Knowledge is power. Right. Um, they, you know, what, you're excited about what you want to learn. That's the most freeing thing. And I feel like that's just so missing. We can have our kids be more focused on grades. And I think there that should be, but I, I remember being a kid and just, you know, I cared about my grades, but some of the junk they were teaching us, it was like, Oh my God, I'm going to fall asleep, you know? Right. So, and then when I was homeschooling my kids, you know, trying to present them stuff in a more interesting way, they're like, this is fun. You know, like, so I, I, I also give kids a little more credit in the sense that I think they might be more inclined mm -hmm. if we kind of met in the middle, right? Like, we want you to get good grades, but get, we're not going to have you read dumb stuff. That's boring. And you know, that's, that is, and by boring, I don't mean hard. There are a lot of people are equating hard with boring. Right. I mean, boring is it's the same repetitive formulaic garbage and nothing challenging. Like right. we're not challenging them. So I don't know. I, what do you think about that? That we need to just do the learning thing different. You have to incentivize learning. You have to incentivize learning. Um, I don't know. It's been a while, but I don't know. I think that it was coming back, but I remember growing up, um, pizza had that book it where if you read a certain amount of books, you get a free pizza or you get like a personal pan pizza. That that right there, I would say, is one of the things that started my love for reading books is because if you, well, you mean to tell me like I can get pizza from reading and then after a while I'd have built a habit of reading books to the point to now I don't really care about the pizza anymore. I just like reading books. Remember, we used to have the book fair. If you like reading books, you like posters. If you dig well in class, you go to the book fair. Um, so it's so many things that incentivize learning because, and it was basically killing um two birds with one stone is that you got your enrichment, but then you got something, some type of fulfillment um, mm -hmm. doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that we have to do that with children these days. Like with all this technology, with all the advancements in technology, there should be a, like a myriad of things to where children should feel good about learning and at some point in time, be able to discern, you know, the information that's important and the, the information they can just leave on the side, but just making sure that they feel good about getting good marks and good, getting good grades and things like that. Well, I think what, you know, uh, somebody said in the chat that, you know, most of the things like about probably about like the parents and the value of learning or um, the kids learn when they get older and more respect. And that's a really good point because, you know, I don't want to project like adult 
you know, sensibilities on these little kids. And at, at the end of the day, if the best we can do is just say, you know, we do know better than you. <laughs> like, we're, And you need to know your multiplication tables, like, and you need to know this stuff and you need to know the history of the country and understand what the constitution says. Like there are some arbitrary things that they just kind of need to learn. And hopefully we can make it as interesting and fun as possible to learn it. But I think maybe they've gone too far in the like, let's make it fun and engaging and not boring. So if I had to choose, I'd, I'd probably choose on the knowledge base, drill, remember, yeah. memorize. When you get older, you go to college, you know, yeah. um, because at least then they walk out with some knowledge. Like at least they know things like where Europe is <laughs> or what Europe is. Right. Yes. Um, I think that would be helpful. Now, as far as um, the kids, you know, I agree with you that charity shouldn't come from government. What what kind of programs have you seen that you think work well that are, let's say, private programs or private things that are helping those kids in the cracks that um, where they're, you know, it shouldn't be the school. Right. But it would be nice if it was someone like what have you seen that's good? So a lot of things I've seen have only happened in the past that I feel like need to be brought back and just revamped. Right. I think after school school programs, um, enrichment programs are, are tremendously tremendously important and i feel that they're not happening in the frequency that i would like to see them happening for example you have a lot of kids today that that are still um athletic driven what i mean by that is they want to be a professional athlete one day so why not you know for two to four hours um while their parents are still at work instead of allowing them to go off you know being be home alone or go off into the streets to, um, give them extra enrichment, but allow them to work on their crowd, work on their game, work on their skills of their games. You know, um, with all these kids that are into YouTube, into creating content, why not start a program to where if a kid maintains a 3.0 GPA, they can get free studio time. They can get free free illustrator time, be able to um, have a, a on-site tutor that comes for two hours, two to four hours after school year, excuse me, a school day and teach them um, Adobe Illustrator, things of that nature. Like give them give them something to do where they can occupy them, their time doing something constructive and something that's going to contribute to all of us rather than to say, oh, you're out of school. So, hey, do what you want to do. No, it, it takes things like that. And it's like I know for a fact that um, different governments on a local level have the money to do these things, but no one is really looking in my opinion, to invest in our children. And that's what that's another thing that I think um, that needs to be discussed is that I feel like when I was a kid, there was there was time resources invested in me. Like for example, I went to I went to New York, I would say in fifth grade, New York, Philadelphia, DC, in fifth grade, staying in a hotel um, with a couple of my friends or which just our cohort. In fifth grade, these are the type of experiences that's going to shape me for the rest of my life. Children don't don't have these experiences anymore. So I just think that with all these tools that we have, with all these ways that I feel specifically in America that people can make money, especially with technology, allow kids to utilize some of these things at an early age, allow their entrepreneurial spirit to blossom at an early age because it will, it will only be beneficial in the future. We right now just make too many excuses as to why we don't do these things. And then when we hear about a child, um, you know, being killed from playing with guns or something like that, we become sad when there there's been so many other solutions that have been presented to prevent things like this. 
Yeah, I agree. Now, um, Mama Wade was asking the the there are so many great ideas, but how how do we implement this? I want to give my answer if it's okay, and then I want to yes. hear yours. Yes. One of the things I'm thinking of is right now you see like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg gives you all these foundations. But what's fascinating to me is they're giving a lot of their money to programs for things to happen in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And most of them are around this, you know, social emotional learning, data gathering. It seems rather self-serving still. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now imagine if it doesn't have to be those guys. Imagine if companies, especially those that are now complaining, like we don't have as well educated a workforce as we could have had, right? Um, imagine if they were the ones to fund what you just described. Yes. If they're like, you know, hey. Let's set up a thing. And I love your idea that there has to be a barrier to entry. Like you've got to have a certain GPA to even get into the program. Yes. And, you know, maybe you make it like a 2.8 or something, you know, just to make it like a little easier, but I'm no, only because. No, no, dad. no, no, okay. no. See, that's the okay. Right there. Okay. No. Okay. Three, okay. No, because you got to think about it like this. This is, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I think it's important for me to say this because I get a lot of heat from that. Oh, you need to make it. No. Why, why are we making it lower? For what? Because you just hold on. Someone will just will, will say, well, well, you know, we have to you have to make it, you know, easy. No, don't make it easy because life is not easy in itself. That's the first lesson kids need to learn as, as kids. And that's I think, true. And I think I think I think the, the one that the thing, the part that concerns me, I guess, is I want the standards to be so high that it's really hard to get a 3.0. And so when I'm saying maybe it's a 2.8, I'm thinking the, those people, like the student I used to be, where, I mean, I did have above a 3.0, but I'm just saying like, I was really bad at math. And I mean, I tried and tried and tried and I worked really hard and I had tutors and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of eluded me. So I'd get A's in all these subjects. And then in math, it would just be like, just beyond my reach. I'd get maybe like a C plus or a B minus or whatever, but it wasn't because of lack of trying. And so I just would, I, I guess I would want a little bit of subject, subjective judgment in there that the kid who demonstrates consistent improvement, who's doing all their homework, you know, maybe like yes, the GPA, absolutely. the GPA plus a recommendation plus, you know, like a few things. I'm not saying to make it easier. I'm just saying to make sure we don't let people slip through the cracks who would be great candidates for this stuff. Right. But, you know, let's face it. Not everybody does great in every subject, even when they're trying. So I just want to make sure that we don't, or that conversely, we don't say it has to be a a 3.0. So suddenly it's easy to get a 3.0. I'm seeing now I'm tutoring kids who have an A in all their subjects. They're like, I have a 4.0 average. And then I'm tutoring them and I'm like, this kid is two grade levels behind in reading, Wow! but they have an A in language arts. So that's why using the grades, I'm always like, you know, they need to have a GPA. And I'm like, I would trust that if I felt like the rubrics were actually attached to real standards okay, of that's fair. performance. So no, no, that's, that's what I meant. Not like, oh, poor babies, let's make it easy. It was more like, let's make sure a three really is a three and then let's have some criteria. But I love the idea and I would love to see it be private, like completely privately funded. Absolutely. So this is this is the idea that I had. Um, okay, so... You have to use a lot of these um, companies' ideology against themselves. And I don't mean it in a negative sense, but just to promote or at least um, create the things, the changes that you want to see. And I think that, like, we have as a community, as a people, have gotten away from understanding just how powerful we are within our own communities. Okay. So, for example, let's say that you had a business, let's say you had a tech company 
um, that was like doing DEI initiatives and I hate DEI initiatives. Right. So let's say they were they wanted to, let, let's say, allow a certain amount of uh, black workers into a specific program. You will basically use that um, to your advantage to say, hey, well, you guys feel that you don't have enough black people or enough uh, per people of color in, the, in this specific position. So instead of um, instead of like doing what you, you guys are doing and just allowing giving these jobs away to people, how about start a program in the community so you can, you know, build your worker of the future? Or whatever. How about you come in? You come in our neighborhood. We have X amount of schools, X amount of high schools. You put this program into play, um, mandating a certain scholastic achievement for these students, and in turn, you teach them the necessary skills. Is going to start a, a route or some type of ladder process in order to work in your company in the future. That way, everybody's winning. The business is winning itself because they're going to have a worker for the future. They're going to be able to establish the type of culture that they want that specific worker to have. The community will benefit because now you're going to have businesses within your community. The students will benefit because now they know they have somewhere to go or something to do um, that's going to allow them to enrich their, themselves in their career. Mm -hmm. All of these things are, are possible, but I just feel like the people don't, don't feel that they are empowered enough to make these changes when essentially if you demand something in it with a with a great number of people in your community your leaders your city leaders your state leaders are going to listen to you they have no choice right. well and you know i think people are just accustomed to asking the government yes i i, I just i mean I'm, I'm down to thinking it's it's bad habit i mean it's just just a, you know, a bad, a bad habit. It's like government is my daddy. Government is my mommy, you know, and, and they're not, they don't, we're so atomized and like separated from each other in communities, whether you're because you live in a big apartment building, you don't talk to your neighbors or because mm -hmm. we're, we're doing technology with our work. We don't have to like have a lot of interpersonal contact on a daily basis. Like we used to that people forget that they think they have to go to a system or an agency or a department to get their needs met and instead of just going to their neighbors and saying, Hey, you guys, you know what? I noticed a lot of kids just hanging out after school doing nothing. There's some retired people over here at the retirement center. They surely have some skills. And then we got this basement over at the church that's not being used. And we got some, you know, we can go ask for a donation from the, you know, let me you know what I'm saying. It's like you said, you just somebody stand up and open your mouth. You've got a lot more agency than you think you do. 1000%. To me, that's that's the problem in our nation right now. I think that so many people are waiting and looking for the government to help them with things where it should be your neighbors helping you out on these things. Like we we don't have a sense of community anymore the way we need to have a sense of community. For example, if we all lived in a neighborhood, including the people in the chat, and I had a child and you guys knew that I, I worked all the time and my kid was totally misbehaving. I would expect some of you guys or I even give you permission to, for some of you guys to speak up and say something to him or her. Now we just, we just let kids run amok. And when things happen or when tragedies happen, we want to be down and distraught about these incidents when essentially they could have been prevented simply from having a sense of community. And right. I just, or, or worse, if you try to steer a child, as I did once upon a time in Boston and I almost got myself killed. Wow. Um, yeah, I was out walking my dog and these two young girls, I would say they're probably about 11 or 12. Uh, thought they'd be really funny and throw rocks at 
there was a, a couple of little Asian kids walking their dog. And I only say that because they were making racial slurs at the time. Wow. So they were throwing rocks at the, at the kid's dog. Those kids ran away. And I said, hey, leave them alone. They turned to me. And I was visibly pregnant, walking my dog in the park. And they come up and they start throwing rocks at my dog. And so I told them to stop. Like in no uncertain terms, I was very, you know, like cut it out, whatever. Right. And they started cussing at me like really foul language. And I said something, you know, I finally got indignant and I said, like, you kiss your mother with that mouth, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, that's, that's a trashy way to talk. You shouldn't talk like that. And they went, they, Oh, did you call us trash? You called us trash. So they ran off, came back with the mom. Wow. And I'm expecting the mom to apologize. (laughs) No, she brought her nephew with his hockey stick and the the nephew, probably the same age, around ten or eleven, volunteered to beat the crap out of me and used a not less nice word than crap. Again, daylight, heart full of people, visibly pregnant woman, mother of two girls, preteens, throwing rocks at a helpless puppy, two helpless puppies, and brings back an armed, basically armed juvenile to threaten to beat me, and. She starts screaming and cussing and just holds it. No, not just hold on. She says to him. I'm sorry you had to go through that, but that's. And that's so, I mean, but, I mean, that's one anecdote. But what I'm saying is, I think tragically. So you got one of the reasons that people don't speak up is they're afraid of that person. Right. We know that person exists. Right. So that parent exists. And some of these kids we've seen on videos and stuff might attack us. So we've reached that point in our evolution where I genuinely believe it's not for it's not for lack of caring or concern or genuine feeling like, you know, you need to stop doing that is just there's zero respect for boundaries to the point where you are physically unsafe if you voice your opinion about what kids are doing in public. Like you just got to like bite your tongue and walk the other way, which is terrible. But that's what I'm seeing in um you know, that was in Boston. I saw that. Um, I see it to a little bit lesser degree in my neighborhood. I'm in like a suburban neighborhood outside of Charlotte. But I don't think a day goes by that on the, the you know, neighborhood social, you know, the social media thing next door or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah. There are parents galore saying, whoever this person was who talked to my child, you stay out of my business and you mind your own business and don't talk to my kid. And it's like, okay. We'll keep our mouths shut. Your kid was like riding in and out of traffic and about to cause an accident, things like that. So this is, this is what I'm also seeing. And so I don't know what, I mean, what do, what do we do if, if we're trying to help kids, but then you got that, what, what, do you have any ideas? (laughs) I'm a little lost on that one. I mean, that's a hard one. Honestly, I just, I just think that in my mind, there's strength in numbers. Like for example, and I'm gonna give like this short example that I'm gonna continue to answer the question. We, we talk about poverty a lot in this, in this country, and we talk about what the government needs to do um, to fix the poverty. But, for example, when you go any, into any type of downtrodden neighborhood, you will see for one of the prime examples or one of the indicators of an impoverished neighborhood is like trash everywhere. Right. What is what is stopping people from going up and picking up that trash themselves in their own communities? What is stopping people from cleaning up their own communities? Now, I'm not saying that you need um, 
any type of like government intervention just yet, but it doesn't take too much from just organizing a team to just walk around and pick up trash to make your neighborhoods more beautiful because people want to live in beautiful places or places that at least look nice. And I think that that aspect or this idea goes to the community and involves in children. Like when the, when you know your neighbors and you guys know each other and you guys understand that, hey, we live in this community together. So we have to ensure that there are going to be specific guidelines followed in our own communities. Now, if we we have an unruly kid with an unruly parent, then we, OK, we understand that. But that, does, that shouldn't take away from us ensuring that the rest of the kids understand that there's going to be a certain type of standard they have to live up to in living in this neighborhood or whatever. Right. I think that again, like I don't I don't know what has happened over the course of the last 20 to 30 years where a sense of community isn't community anymore. People just rather stay to themselves, don't even talk to their neighbors, don't even look out for their neighbors. Like there's no reason to me in my mind, if we live we all live in the community together, there's no reason why someone should be able to break into your car or break into your house. Like everyone should be alert, everyone should care. But it seems right. like we don't care. There's like, it's almost as we have this full sense of community or whatever that like we we say exists on along the mainstream, but it doesn't. But then on the flip side, we have we don't even have any sense of individuality, even though we act like that amongst one another. Does that make sense yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, like, it does. And people are trying to segment themselves off and label themselves as being part of, I'm this, yes. I'm that, I'm the like, other, instead of just like, hi, I'm Barrington, you know, I'm yes, Deb. Like, <laughs> like, I see. Yes, like, 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 for example, you have members of the intelligentsia that say, that say says things like the black community, but in certain black com communities you'll go to and the neighbors don't even know each other. The neighbors don't even know each other. So it's like, what, what are we really talking about? Do we really live in a sense of community? And then it's like, there are aspects of times where we're supposed to be individuals and we're not individuals, but we are individual when it comes to our own stuff. Like I've heard people in, in neighborhoods in Atlanta will, will, where it'll be like a, um, a slew of crimes that take place in a, in a neighborhood. And people really say, well, as long as they don't break in my car, I'm fine. And it's like, wait a minute, but they broke in somebody else's car, literally two houses down. You shouldn't be okay with that. Right. But, but you're fine with that individuality. But when it comes to, you know, upward bound movement in society, you don't want to be an individual then, you want to be a part of the community. I, I don't understand that. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think if you if you teach kids in school, and this has been done for decades, that, you know, giving and sharing and, you know, group this and group that is, is the higher value than your own individual personal responsibility, the, you, you get that. I mean, you, you get a culture that supports that. Um, mm -hmm. John says, and I, I tend to agree, he says, I still believe the first step to everything is smaller government and lower taxes. Now, aside from the economic impact of that, where he goes on and says, you know, when taxes are lower, people have more money and people have more money, families prosper. I mean, ideally, they would make good choices with the money. But yes. what it does is that I've noticed, because you, if you look at different states around the country that have higher taxes or lower taxes, there is a perception I paid already. So in the very high tax places, there's less charity, 
we know this. I mean, you can look at, you know, how much people give to charity. People don't give as much to charity. The communities are more fragmented. People are more standoffish and, you know, like over here. And I think that somewhere like deep, deep down, they feel like they paid some, they offloaded and outsourced their, their morality, their community feeling and all that to the government. Like I get, you took everything I got, go do that job. I'm over here trying to enjoy what's left of my leisure time. Right. And and you almost can't blame them because they they did. They gave it the office. You know what I mean? Like right. it was they didn't give, it was taken. But when you see places that have lower taxes, there tends to be less of a sense of that. I say tens because everything's a little bit of a generalization. Right, 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 right. right. Um, what do you what do you think about that? Do you think there's merit to that? Yes, um, I actually agree with John. I think I don't like I don't believe in big government and in government um being basically in all aspects of our lives because at the end of the day, like we're supposed to be sovereign individuals, be it right. with, the, with the ability to make decisions for ourselves. Um right. like going back to what I stated earlier, like like charity should not come from the government under any circumstances, but uh, the, the government should be able to facilitate um charitable like donations from a community. That way I feel like everybody else will benefit. And I think that like oftentimes, especially in our society, we subsidize bad behaviors. And I don't understand, I don't understand why. If we're gonna subsidize anything, we should subsidize good behaviors. Because if as a person, as an individual, if I see that people are um, putting a good foot forward and bettering their lives, I'm gonna be more susceptible to helping them rather than people making bad decisions and allowing the government to basically heal their wounds. Right. And right. I think that that's what we see a lot. Like if we, if we see people that are trying hard to better, better themselves and better their families, then we will be fruitful when giving easily, yeah. but we don't have that. And it's unfortunate. And this is, well, and we're told don't judge, don't judge. And it's like, I think people confuse discernment, and placing a value on something with judgment, right. if that makes sense. Right. So like what you're describing is saying, I want to reward what I value. And what I value is people taking care of themselves and making an effort. And they're demonstrating they, they were sort of des deserving, right? They're like, I am doing this on my own. I'm not asking you for a leg up. So then you go, and that's why I want to give it to you, right? Whereas you know, deciding that the person is just sitting there doing nothing and like projecting onto them all kinds of nobility. Well, the only reason they're not is this uh, blah, blah, blah. You, like, like you said, people make up a story, a romantic story right. about why they're down on their luck and how it's somebody's fault. And you're going to be the great savior that comes along and fixes it for them. I think that's more about the giver and more about the little story, the romance they put around it than about actually subsidizing a value. Absolutely. It's like they're subsidizing their what they want to say about themselves. I wish I really wish like there was a way and I think we can look these statistics up where taxes our taxes could be itemized. Like if you know, like, for example, I want to say um, in one of the counties here in Georgia, um, a lot of the taxes go to the school system, but the school system is failing. And so I feel like if people understood that, wow, most of my tax dollars are going to this failing school system, which means that what I'm paying for, I'm not getting a great product for what I'm paying for. And so people would, could start demanding that um, a lot of the tax revenue that's given to these initiatives could be 
offset or replaced in, in other aspects. Because I think right. that oftentimes, like, to be honest, one of the foundational issues of our society is that we're ignorant. We're ignorant of a lot of, a lot of things. We just we just do things because we're, we're accustomed to it. And we saw our parents do it. So that's why we do it. We don't ask any questions. When people start um, like going through the, the data and the numbers with the fine tooth comb, and they start to see that, wow, I paid this much in taxes to this to this whatever, and this is how it is. So you mean to tell me that my tax dollars are basically being wasted when essentially I could find more use for myself. And I get it. We all live in society. Um, we have to pay taxes under, understood. But I think that going forward, we should really care about where our tax dollars are going, what types of subsidies the government has, has initiated to take care of specific issues that continue to worsen and things mm -hmm. of that nature. We need to ask, we need to ask questions because if we don't, we just allow our government to get over on us, which they've been doing for a long time now. And yet we complain about the same problems and we don't present any solutions. Right. So now last, I think the last thing I want to ask you, it's a little bit personal, but um, you don't have kids right now, right? No kids. Not yet. Okay. If you had kids or if you have nieces and nephews, whatever, would you put them in the public schools? Absolutely not. As as they absolutely. are today. That's easy. That's absolutely not, 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 not at all. Um, I personally want my, like, see, I point based on how I was raised, I want to be hands-on with my child's education, with my children's education. Um, it is too, it's, it's too much indoctrination going on within the public school system. And I, I can honestly uh, say that um, back in our day, I didn't even know the first names of my, my elementary school teachers. Now all of a sudden you have teachers, um, like showcasing and giving out private information about their lives that doesn't even matter at all, then um, I don't really care for specific types of ideologies to be taught to children because children aren't able to conceptualize certain topics at a young age. You know, like they should be only learning the basics, the absolute basics. And then if there's anything else they want to know, then you have a way of teaching them or at least starting the conversation. Like all of these, all of this ideology that's been implemented within schools uh, more so recently than ever has not been a positive, a net positive at all towards getting our students um, at the level to allow them to compete against other, other students elsewhere. Like, for example, prime example, we, um, I was looking at or reading an article a couple months back that was stating about how TikTok in China is different from TikTok here. TikTok mm. in China, TikTok in China, the, the kids there are looking at things like art, ag agriculture, um, like industry, things that are going to give them more enrichment for their minds and show them things that matter. TikTok here, you have adults doing crazy dances. Like, like think this just think about the content difference of yes, what, like the candidate. Like the candidate who was on your Twitter feed today. Oh my, oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, so what are you? Like, what are you doing? Like twerking upside down. That's such a. That's yeah. It's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's like again. And I said this. I said this before. I'm gonna say it again. We have legitimately um, sacrificed so much in our country for the sake of acceptance and inclusion. I'm not the type of like like I'm not the type of person that's going to be quiet about it because it's a problem and we're not going to see 
the ramifications of this issue until later on down the line. Like everything seems seems nice now, but the, the real issues are going to start happening 5, 10, 20 years from now. All because people want their behaviors to be accepted, but your behaviors does not have to be accepted. The government does not have to protect who you are. No, we can. We're all equal under the law. Yes, that matters. But I have a right to not want to be associated with the things that you that you like. I have a right to tell you or the right to to openly object to your behaviors. That's a right of mine. Your feelings are not protected by the U.S. government. Your feelings. No by the law that's right that's and it's right like, this this can go it is this ties into our um education topic as well because that's where this idea of equal outcomes come comes in and there's no such thing as equal outcomes yep nope it's and it would be it would require massive amounts of force to achieve them and that's what people don't you know understand is that like you don't like the police and you don't like indiscriminate use of force, <laughs> but you want equal outcomes. Do you not see how this is not going to work? Like you can't, you can't have that. It doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, I, but I, I'm, I'm heartened to hear that you, you see it as, as a kind of a thing that is not really fixable because that's, that's sort of where I am. And I don't, i I like to think of myself as a fairly optimistic person. In fact, I'm the type of person who hears you describing these like community-based solutions. I'm like, all right, who do I know that we could like talk about getting that done here? You know, like I really believe that if people would just do those things, they would start small. They wouldn't be huge. It's not going to solve every kid's problem overnight, but I do think there would be a domino effect in the positive direction. I think it would take off and it would, it would reap huge benefits for everyone involved. So I have optimism that way. Like right. my white pill is that we have so much more agency and power than we know we have. Even if you don't have a lot of money, if you have a mouth and you have you know, the guts to go talk to people in your community, you can do a lot more good than you think. And then, but where I'm sort of blackpilled is on thinking that there's anything that can be done with the systems that are in place to turn them around in a time frame and at a cost that is remotely reasonable. You know, it's like, I feel like you might as well just be trying to stop a, a tidal wave from, you know, like with your two hands. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to work. Right. See, my thing is this. I think in order to create a better future or a better nation, we have to recreate better people. And I don't necessarily mean like new people, but we have to go back to the basics of what makes a good person a good person. We have to go back to the basic of understanding um, how essential community is. We have to go back to the basics of caring for one another. We have to go back to the basis of empathy and compassion. And all of that is missing these days. All of that is missing these days. Like, um, real empathy, real compassion, not the folk yeah, kind. Fake yes, 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 not the fake kind, but real, like just understanding that um, we're all flawed individuals. We all have our negatives as well as our positives. There are some people right. that need more help than others, and if, as long as they're trying to help themselves, we should seek to better their their situation. But the, the key part of what I said is if they're trying to better themselves. Yeah, because so because our government right now is trying to help people who don't even want to help themselves. Meanwhile, like totally leaving the people that need the help who are trying to help themselves in the dark, you know, yep. and I just I just I just feel like 
we have simple fixes, we have simple solutions, but it won't begin until people just change their minds. I can't improve on that. That's <laughs> it won't begin until people that is beautiful. John says, Deb, this is a community, this show. I hope so. Yes. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, so you guys, having listened to Barrington, I, I mean, he's just given us gold here as far as ideas of things we can do in our own communities. You know, don't expect to hang the moon in a day, you know, but mm -hmm. there are things that you can do. And even if you start especially small, like your community is your own home with yes. your own family, yes. your own kids, your own with the grandparents, aunts, uncles, like anybody within your immediate periphery, mm -hmm. like think about how you can contribute to helping kids around you in, like that, you know, get a better education. There's probably a lot more than you can, that you can do that doesn't involve going to the school board meeting. Like you can just pull your own community together. And I, that's what I'm trying to do here is give people ideas of how to do that. And you've, you've given us some great ones. So I really thank you for spending this time with me and, um, and sharing your perspective and your, your background. I hope everybody will check you out. All of, all of Barrington's stuff, is, you know, all his information is Twitter, his Instagram, how to find him on his radio show is all in the description. Um, the Twitter is great. I mean, like I said, I follow his Twitter and I'm, always, I'm just standing back going, all right, you know, <laughs> so, keep it up. And I'm, and I, kudos to your family. Uh, really, I hope, Others watching will will uh, you know take follow that example. We need we need more people like your grandma. That's oh, what we need. Oh yeah, to this day, and that's that's why um like I'm I'm so thankful to be able to um continuously experience my grandmothers at their elderly age because even to this day, my grandmother is again 91 years old, but she's very she's very sharp in the mind. And we have conversations about politics. We talk about so many things. And even she gives her um, her commentary on the world right now because she knows, like she says all the time, these children are illiterate. They can't read. And that's the yeah. problem. Yeah. Well, with, next time you talk to her, please tell her she has my appreciation and thanks. I'm I'm in awe of people of that generation. I had a grand grandfather who fought in both world wars and he nice. was like my hero. Nice. So so kudos, grandma. Um Everybody watching, thank you so, so much for coming today. Thank and um, we will uh, see you next time on the next The Reason We Learn show. Thank Have you, a great babe. one, everybody. Thank you.